Okay, take your Bibles with me this morning and turn back to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. We had looked at verse 4. My intentions last week was to cover verses 4 and 5. And I only got through verse 4. And my intention this week was to get through verses 5 through 8. Well, I didn't even get through all of verse 5. All I got was half of verse 5 taken care of, Kenny. So, I, uh, Lord willing, we will come back next Sunday and we will preach the third message in this series, which is entitled, Not by Works of Righteousness. This will be part two. I thought about this long and hard as I sat there in front of my computer screen and watched the little cursor sit there and blink at me as I was beginning to, to write out the message, and especially in light of this verse that we're going to begin looking at this morning. It's so important, it's so critical, so crucial to our understanding of, of what we preach and what we believe. When he makes a statement like this, not by works of righteousness which we have done. Now let that verse sink in here, not by works of righteousness which we have done. And I try to think back in my former religion and try to think the way that the unregenerate mind thinks. You know, when, when the unregenerate mind considers and speaks about total depravity, which I hope and I pray after all the years you've been with me, you understand the scriptural truth of total depravity. But when the unregenerate mind thinks about total depravity, to them it always, I mean always without exception, revolves around or involves immorality and ungodliness. That's how they view uh, total depravity. And see, they define, define immorality and ungodliness. How do they define that? Well, it's lust, it's adultery, it's murder, it's lying, it's homosexuality. I'd even add in our day and time, in the way, over the last five years, it's transgenderism. Any other quality of character that has something to do, any sin, it has to do with a man or a woman's character and conduct. Now, while it's true, and there's no doubt that all these fleshly sins that I've listed, and that's what they all are. I mean, and the thing we've got to realize is this. There's no difference between any sins. There's no small sins. You understand that, right? If you offend, you, you break the law in one point, how many are you guilty of? So whether it's one sin or 10,000 sin, it makes no difference. The wages of sin are death. And so there's no doubt that these fleshly sins, they are qualities of character in many who are totally depraved. There's no doubt about it. But I tell you, we greatly err if we don't include the greatest evidence that one's still dead in trespasses and sins, that one's still an enemy in their minds by wicked works, that one is still has a mind that is enmity against God. What sin is that? It's the sin of self-righteously going about to establish a righteousness by which a sinner thinks that God owes them or is indebted to them to give them eternal life. We just don't, the natural mind cannot make that connection. The natural mind thinks like this, if you're in church, you're okay. 
If you're out of church, what are you? You're totally depraved. Listen, the most totally depraved people that existed on the earth were not the publicans and the sinners when our Lord Jesus Christ was there. The publicans and sinners did not seek our Lord's demise. Who did? The religious people. The moral people. Those who were trying to keep the law. Listen, Paul wrote this, Wherefore, because they sought it not, talking about his natural brethren after the flesh, the Jews, he said, Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumble at the stumbling stone. And that's what men and women are still doing today. What's the stumble stone? As it's written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumble stone, a rock of offense, whosoever believes on him. It's a person. Whoever believes on him, the stumbling stone, he'll never be ashamed. And then he went on, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to Israel, my kinsmen according to the flesh, is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of the righteousness of God and going about to establish their own righteousness, here's the greatest sin of all, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. The greatest sin, the greatest display of total depravity is for one not to believe what God has revealed concerning the way of salvation through, by, and in Christ alone. John stated it this way, He that believeth on the Son of God, what believes on the Son of God, hath the witness in himself. Do you have the witness in yourself? His spirit witnesses to our spirit, according to what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, his spirit witnesses to our spirit that we are what? We are children of God. Do you have the witness? The only one that can witness to you as a child of God is not you're going to church, being moral, being sincere, turning over a new leaf. He has to show you where's your hope. We're saved by hope, right? He says, but he that believes not God, now listen to this implication, hath made God a liar. Because he believes not the record that God gave of his son. This is the record. And this is what the witness witnesses of. This is the record. That God hath given to us freely, without any condition. He hath bestowed upon us eternal life. And this life is where? It's in his son. He that hath the son hath life. And he that hath not the son of God have not life. They might be 10,000 things that the world admires and appreciates. But if they have not the Son of God, is the Lord their righteousness? They don't have life. Self-righteous, unregenerate, deluded sinners call what I just stated to you easy believism. And they claim that it'll promote ungodly behavior. I've had people tell me that about it. They, they, I, I think people that believe that way, they think that I'm passing a group of immoral perverts is what y'all are, that we're the worst kind of people. I have never, for 36 years, I've not preached the law to anybody at this congregation, and I never will. 
I'm not going to put you back under the yoke of bondage. I don't see any of our church family using what this freeness of this gospel gives as a, an avenue by which you can live how you want to live. Well, maybe you are. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what you like away from here. We don't see each other but every week, every Saturday and Sunday. But I, I ain't seen any of you in the, in the newspaper. <laughs> ain't heard any rumors of any of you being arrested for anything illegal and illicit. I, I tell you what, and I, I, I know this sounds awful, but it's just real. I could care less what lost people think. I really could. What they say, think or what they say about this message that I preach, this message that you believe and have hope in. Because I know this much, God's truth's clear. He justifies who? The ungodly. And I'm preaching to sinners who by nature, what are you? You're ungodly. You know yourself to be ungodly. You know that in your flesh dwells no good thing. You know that you want to love God and can't, won't love your neighbor and can't. But what do you still do? You still try to honor God. You still try to glorify Him. And see, that's what the Apostle Paul is setting forth in, in this, this letter that he wrote to Titus, that, that all who would believe through their testimony, through Titus's testimony and through Paul's testimony, what do they believe? For we ourselves were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts, pleasures, living in malice and envy and hateful, hating one another. But after that, in spite of that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. But notice his next word. Look at verse 5, because this is, this is basically about all we're going to get covered this morning. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. Could that be any more clear or simple? I don't have to doctor it up or change it or take it out of context. It's in its proper context. The kindness and mercy of God's what saved us. We'll see that as we move forward. But he tells us and makes it clear to them, makes it clear to you and me, not by works of righteousness, which we've done. Paul had just dogmatically declared that our salvation had appeared or had been made manifest or had been revealed through what? the kindness and love of God our Savior. And here Paul makes it clear, salvation cannot be brought about and it cannot be attained by works of righteousness. Isn't that clear? Not by works of righteousness, which we've done. Young's little translation of this verse is this, and it's all in parentheses, not by works that are in righteousness that we did, but according to his kindness. Do you see the contrast? It's his kindness. It's his benevolence. It's his love. It's mercy. It's his grace. This is not just the first time Paul makes this kind of statement. When he writes another young preacher, Timothy, he writes to Timothy and he tells us this, told Timothy this, you and me is included, who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. You see that? Not according to our work, but according to His own purpose and grace, 
which was given us in Christ Jesus, when? Before the world began. Now listen to me, and I want to be very clear when I make these kind of statements, because I don't want anybody to go out here and say, well, you think believers don't ever do works of righteousness. Well, that's exactly what Paul has stated. Believers can do, and they actually do. I almost said actually do do, but they actually do what? They do works of righteousness. How do we know that? Not by works of righteousness. He includes himself, which we have done. So whatever these works of righteousness, now that, that's another avenue as to what a work of righteousness is. But he says believers do works of righteousness. But he makes it clear that even though we do works of righteousness, these works of righteousness, folks, you know what? Whatever they are, I know whatever. If you do a work of righteousness, where does it come from? It come from. It's God working through you. You didn't work it up on your own. But they make up no part of, and listen, neither are they a condition of the elect of God's justification or our sanctification or our glorification. This is so important. Now, you think about this. In order for a work to be a work of righteousness, the sinner who does the work, what do they got to be? They have to be righteous. They have to be righteous. They have to be declared righteous. Otherwise, the work that they do, what is it? It's a work of unrighteousness. How do we know that? Lord, Lord, have we not preached in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not done many wonderful works in your name? Then will I, sweet loving Jesus, then will I profess unto them, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. What were their works of iniquity? See anything about homosexuality? Murder? Lying, theft, adultery, all those sins that men put so much emphasis on, character and conduct. No, what's their works of iniquity? Preached in your name, cast out demons in your name, did many wonderful works in your name. Every work that they did, what was it? It was iniquity. You think about it. And this this is the thing the natural mind cannot admit to or own up. Every prayer you prayed before God revealed himself to you as the Lord, your righteousness, you know what it was? It was a prayer to an idol. Every time you stepped in a door to go worship, you know what you were doing? You were worshiping an idol. All the love that you showed to your friends and family and even to your enemies, what was it? It was an abomination before this God. Oh, no, preacher, God loves those saying, no, 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 no. Huh? It's not by works of righteousness. Hey, Paul told them at Rome, for when we were in the flesh, and if he's made that statement, when we were, for when we were in the flesh, if he's saying when we were in the flesh, what's he stating now? We're not in the flesh anymore. Well, you mean Paul was no longer in a human body? Yeah, he was in a human body. What is it to be in the flesh? It's to be in a state of condemnation, alienation, separation from God. It's to be in unbelief. It's to be unregenerate. It's to be dead in trespasses and sin. He says, for when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, listen to this, which were by the law, 
did work in our members, these, through our, everything, our mind, our will, our understanding, our hands, our feet, everything that we did. I saw a sign this week uh, at one of the churches. I didn't post it on Facebook, but it was there. They always come up with some doozies. They, and they said this. They said, we are God's only mouthpiece. Really? Us? We're his only mouthpiece? I, if all you hear is me, you heard nothing. He's his own mouthpiece. Then, then he say, I call my sheep by name. How? Through his word. One old Arthur wrote on this verse, part of this verse, he said this. I know, Ken, you'll look this up and you'll, you'll figure out who it is. <laughs> he affirms that by their works, they did not at all deserve that they should become partakers of salvation, and that they should be reconciled to God through faith. But he says that they obtained this blessing solely through the mercy of God. We therefore conclude from his words that we bring nothing to God but that he goes before us by his pure grace without any regard to our works. For when he says, not by works which we have done, he means, listen to this, he means that we can do nothing but sin. Can do nothing but sin until God has renewed us by his grace. John Calvin wrote that. <laughs> That's who wrote it. I tell you who wrote it. It's from his commentary. But that brings us to the second part of this, this wonderful verse. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but listen to this, but according to his mercy. And that's what hung me up, that mercy thing. <laughs> according to his mercy. Remember what the Lord told We said this last week in the message. Remember what the Lord said to those Jews who questioned his disciples about their master eating with publicans and sinners? And what he said? He told them, but go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In our text, is, but according to his mercy, that word mercy, and that verse that I just read to you from Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, both those words, mercy and have mercy, mean to exercise mercy or to show oneself to be merciful. In other words, mercy is, is God not giving to the sinner what is truly deserved and truly merited by their actions or inactions? So in this situation, it always comes back to the same simple truth. It comes back to the glory of God. Always. I think about when Moses stood before our Lord and asked the Lord, if I found grace in your eyes, Show me your glory. Show me your glory. He actually said, I beseech thee. Show me your glory. That's Exodus 33, verse 18. What's God's glory? Do you know? Can you know? Well, God told Moses and he told us. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord. 
Now keep this in mind. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. What's Romans 10 verse 13 tell us? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So that lets me know His glory is what? It's His name. It's His name. Whosoever shall, he said, I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee. Here's your name. I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. And I will show mercy. There's that word, mercy, on whom I will show mercy. And in the next chapter, chapter 34, Jehovah actually performed for Moses what he had promised he'd do when he told him this in verses 18 and 19 of Exodus 33. And the Lord descended in the cloud. Who is this? It's the same Lord that he talked to in the bush, Kenny. It's the same Lord that Jacob wrestled with all night. Because you look, God is spirit. You can't wrestle with the spirit. Who is it? This is the Lord of glory. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord descended in the cloud. And stood there with him. And listen, he proclaimed the name of the Lord. Can you envision that saying? <laughs> God Almighty Himself descends from heaven to where a wicked, evil man's at and proclaims His name. But He goes on. The Lord passed. By before him. He told him, you can't look on my face and live. I'll hide you in a cleft of the rock. And I'll pass by. And you can see my hindermost part. You see my backside is what you can see. Because no man's looked on God and lived. He passed by before him and he proclaimed the Lord. The Lord God. Merciful. Gracious. Long-suffering. Abundant in goodness and truth. Remember what he said he was going to make? He said, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. Right? Keeping mercy for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And I underline this because this is so important that we understand this. And that will by no means clear the guilty. So now we have what appears to be a paradox. What's the paradox? How can a God who is so holy and so just and so strict in His justice who will by no means clear the guilty, how can He at the same time be gracious to whom He'll be gracious and show mercy to whom He'll show mercy? I bet you they're not telling you this out yonder in those other places. Prophet Micah said of Moses, God, our God, who is like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant, you see that, the remnant of his heritage. Not the world, the remnant of his heritage. He retaineth, in this good news, he retaineth not his anger forever. Because he delighteth he delighteth in mercy. 
These words, because he delighteth in the original Hebrew, are one word which means take pleasure in, or be pleased with, or be pleased to do. That, bring, that brings me to the question of all questions. What does God take pleasure in? Here religious people take it, take on it. He, he takes pleasure in them. And whatever they've become. What does God take pleasure in? What's God pleased with? He delights, he's pleased with one thing. What? Mercy. His mercy. That word translated mercy in the Hebrew means pretty much the same thing as it does translated mercy in the Greek in our text. It means goodness. It means gentleness. It means kindness. It means this. This is the one, faithfulness. It is the Lord's mercy that we are not consumed. His compassion fail not. They are new every morning. Great thy faithfulness. You see that? Now, I want to make certain that you understand exactly the point that I'm trying to make. The scriptures make it clear that God does not and he cannot show mercy just for the sake of showing mercy can. His holiness and his justice demand what? Satisfaction. You got to keep that truth in mind with what I'm about to say to you now. Remember what he told Moses? He says, I will make all my goodness pass before thee. What's God's goodness? Listen, all of God's goodness is found in that person who is the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And see, this revelation by God's answer, this question we asked earlier, it, you know, God, this revelation that, that Christ is God's goodness, it answers that question, what's God's glory? What is it? Here it is, God's glory is found only in the person and work of the God-sent Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. By his obedience unto death glorified every attribute of God's character as both a just God who will by no means clear the guilty. And yet, by the same accomplished death, magnify and honor and glorify himself as a God of all mercy and all grace to those who are in and of themselves guilty and undeserving. Here's God's glory. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. And this one who's God's goodness. You think about this two times in the Gospel of Matthew, God spoke from heaven concerning his goodness. And lower voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. That's Matthew 3 17. 
And then in Matthew 17, verse 5, it says, While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Our Lord Jesus Christ used Isaiah's prophecy concerning himself to point out that in him alone, by his obedience unto death, God finds satisfaction. He finds that which he pleased with. Listen to you. Behold my servant, whom I've chosen, my beloved, and whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. He will show judgment. That word judgment means righteousness. He'll show righteousness to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth, there's that word, judgment again, righteousness unto victory. And in his name shall the Gentiles trust. What's his glory? What's the glory of God? How did Christ as the goodness of God glorify God? Well, let's let him tell us. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. Thou hast given him power, authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. How? Finished the work. I have finished the work that thou gavest me to do. What did he do? He brought in everlasting righteousness by his obedience unto death. So the question comes back to this Have you or I seen the glory of God? Because I tell you what, I know this much. If I hadn't seen God's glory, if I hadn't seen the glory of God, in the person of God's goodness, you don't know him, and I don't know him, and we're still dead in trespasses and sin, and we're still enemies in our minds by wicked works. Because you know what? All God's people, every single solitary one of them, you know what they all see? They see the glory of God in Christ Jesus. How do I know? In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest they see the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who's the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where's the light of the knowledge of the glory of God? It's only seen one place in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you see the great contrast? The Spirit sets forth by Paul's word. Salvation, eternal life, is not by works of righteousness performed by a sinner before or after the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared or is manifested to them. Salvation and everything included in it is according to his mercy, period. That's our hope. David stated it like this. He delighteth not in the strength of horses. 
He taketh not pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord takes pleasure in them that fear him. And those, and this is us, in those that hope in his mercy. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. But one last thing, and we'll quit. Look at this last phrase in verse 5, or next to last phrase. He, how does it state it? It says in our text, but according to his mercy, three little words, he saved us. According to these words, you know what? God has saved his people through Christ's accomplished work. What was that? She shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. You think about this. Salvation was not only determined and resolved in the mind of God, but it was actually and completely accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ, obedience unto death. This word translated, he saved, it's a verb, and as a verb, it has tense, and it's in the aorist tense, which speaks of what? Past tense. He saved us. Christ didn't put men in a savable position, and he didn't open the door for them to fulfill some conditions in order to be saved. What did he do? He saved us. This word translated he saved means to save, to keep safe and sound, to rescue from danger and destruction. When our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross spoke those three, actually it was one word, teleos, we have three English words, it is finished. When he said it is finished, it was finished. Totally and completely. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once. Read it every time we take the Lord's table. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Set apart. Same ones that he says he sanctified through the offering of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you listen to me, and we'll close with this. It's according to his mercy that he saved us. And I tell you, that's the gospel promise. That's the good news. We declare to those who by nature deserve what? Condemnation and death. All things are of God. Paul wrote to those at Corinth who, listen, past tense, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ the goodness of God, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. Not, let's see this, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed to us this word of reconciliation. What's the word of reconciliation? He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I always think about those Jews that stood before our Lord that had believed on him and they looked at him and even though they'd believed on him, he'd given mental assent to him, they said, tell us 
the work, let us tell us what we should work that we might work the works of God. And Christ looked at him and he said, this, he said, this is the work of God. This is God's work. That you believe on him whom God hath sent. They couldn't do it. We can't even. We'll come back next week and we'll talk about how he actually applies this which he accomplished to the person and work of his dear son. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed. Appreciate your presence. Mm-hmm.